Let's pray together. Father, we hope now in your word again. We pray that you would help us, incline, your, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to material gain. Open the eyes of our heart to see wonderful things in your word, things familiar, things from a fresh perspective, maybe not a new perspective, but things thought through again afresh. Help us to see the glory of Christ by your Spirit's power in some ways from the texts and the meditation here. And we pray that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, that we would understand and deepen our faith in Christ and in the gospel and in its centrality and its functional centrality for our lives, for our ministries, and for our churches, and for our neighbors into the nations with the gospel spreading. And so, Lord, give us a healthy understanding of gospel doctrine, we pray. We need your help now. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, you told us we can do nothing. We would waste our time. I can't teach well and effectively apart from your spirit and your help, and we can't hear well and humbly and grow. So we want to abide in you now. We desperately need your help. So help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you had to use one word to communicate the gospel, what word would you choose? I want to hear something out loud, so it's not rhetorical, but if you had to use one word to communicate the gospel, what word would you choose? Grace. Grace. Jesus. John, yeah, Jesus. Cross. What else? Sorry. Hope. Yeah. Gospel. Hope. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, there's one. Adoption, maybe. Substitution. Salvation. Forgiveness. God. Jesus. What if you had two words to use? Or three words to use. J.I. Packer has summarized it in two different ways. Adoption through propitiation in one summary. And another one, God saves sinners. How would you summarize the gospel? A church is made up, a church is the people of the gospel. So a church is made up of people who understand the gospel, who believe the gospel, and who live by the gospel or according to the gospel for the spread of the gospel. What is a local church? We're going to be thinking about that in our pastoral internship. I say when we do the, our pastoral internship, which focuses on ecclesiology, we answer three questions. What is a church? What is a healthy church? And how do you, how do you help a church grow in health? So what is a church? I wonder what you'd answer. Let me give you one shot at it here. A church is an assembled group of Christians collectively responsible for each other's profession of and practice of faith in Jesus in order to disciple their neighbors and the nations. An assembled group of Christians who are collectively responsible for each other's profession of and faith and practice of faith in Jesus Christ. When I say collectively responsible, I'm talking about um, excommunication and incommunication and then the communion. So people coming in and then living together as a communion and then uh, sending people out, transferring them to another communion or excommunicating. And Jonathan will talk more about church membership and discipline as the conference goes on. But a church helps people live and grow in their profession of and practice of faith in Jesus. So we help people live and grow by refreshing their faith in the gospel and in God and in biblical teaching. So we want to think about a healthy church as a church that understands gospel doctrine. And to understand gospel doctrine, that means we must understand the gospel message as well as the framework of teaching. The framework of truths that upholds and illumines and directs that gospel message in our understanding and in our living. So if expository preaching 
for us as pastors, if expository preaching is us making sure that people are hearing from Jesus, gospel doctrine makes sure our people know that they're hearing from Jesus. How do they know that what we're saying is true? How do they know that what we're saying is actually from Jesus? Are they just to trust us in our, our, exposition, our exposition and interpretation? It's the gospel doctrine, their understanding of the framework and the message of the gospel of who Jesus is that they can discern that they're actually hearing from Jesus. Jesus told us in John 10 that his sheep know his voice and they hear him. 1 John chapter 4, 2 and 3 says this, This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So here, people will know, uh, this is how you know someone has the spirit of God, that they confess Jesus Christ came from God. That means you need to understand who Jesus is, who God is, and what does it mean that he came from God. Christians recognize God's spirit as the spirit of truth and the message of truth in Jesus Christ. So how do we know that our message is from God? What is this message? How can our people know? You know, two days ago, I was uh, being interviewed about the SBC uh, sexual abuse report from a, um, uh, a newspaper, and uh, the writer was asking me, did you talk to God about this? Did you ask God? She said, can I ask you a personal question? Did you talk to God about this? I said, yes. She said, did you ask God why is he allowing these things? And I said, sure. I, I asked in, in lament and um, she said, did, did God answer you? And what did God say? What was the answer? Now, I, I pointed to what the, what the Bible teaches, God's transcendence, God's incarnation and crucifixion in, in Jesus, and God's bigger plan and providence. But my point here is that what I needed at that point is gospel doctrine, right? What does the Bible teach? What has God revealed in his word so I know what God has said? This important need calls for churches and pastors to know and grow in the gospel doctrine. So we're going to think about it for the rest of our time here in three headings or three topics, okay? So I'm trying to do three, three lectures in one. What is the gospel? Number one. So some thoughts on the gospel. What is the gospel? What is systematic theology? And how does that relate to the gospel? And um, what is biblical theology? Okay? What is the gospel? What is systematic theology? And what is biblical theology? I hope to define these briefly, to discuss them, and give you some suggestions as leaders of your church on how you can lead your church to grow deeper in understanding gospel doctrine. All right, so we'll look, we'll look at these one at a time. Okay, so number one, what is the gospel? Graham Goldsworthy has said, the gospel is a word about Jesus Christ and what he did for us in order to restore us to a right relationship with God. At the core, so if I had to choose one word, um, again, Praise God, we don't have to choose one word to summarize the gospel, right? But if I had to choose one, I think I would say Jesus, right? Uh, which means Yahweh saves, his name, Yeshua, right? Yahweh saves. So you get two words in, in his name, right? But, but at the core of the gospel is Jesus. Who is he? And what has he done? This is what I would call the gospel proper. We talk about theology and theology proper. Theology, the study of God, and theology proper, the study of, of who God is particularly so this is what I would call the gospel proper. Who is Jesus and what has he done? Well, according to John 1, you can turn to John 1, 14. These are basic truths for you, but we need to think about these and celebrate these and uh, remind ourselves of these. In John 1, 14, it says, or John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, Word was God. 
The word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. He's the creator. And then in John 1.14, it says, this word, who was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So who is Jesus? He is the word. He is God. He is God who has become flesh. And he is God, he is God the son, from God the Father. We have that in just those two verses, right? John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14. Jesus is God the son who has become flesh. God and man. Truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man. So who is Jesus? He is God and man. God the son. And what did he come to do? Jesus lived the life we should have lived in perfect righteousness and obedience, fulfilled the law covenant, and died on the cross for our sins. So the second, so if I had to have three words for Jesus, I'm going incarnation, substitution, restoration. Incarnation, substitution, restoration. The first one was incarnation, that he is the God-man. Next is substitution. He lives in our place, fulfilling all righteousness for us, and then he dies in our place. So Matthew 20, 28 says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, the Father, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in our place. To be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Substitution by his life and his death on the cross for us. And then the last one is restoration. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, and here is a summary of the gospel. So turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Our, our brother, Pastor Bobby Scott, preached this at the Together for the Gospel conference just a, a month ago, if you want to see a, hear a full exposition here. But 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. So we're going to get to the resurrection here, the restoration. But it says, Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's the gospel in verse 3. For I passed on to you as most important, or as of first importance, most important, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So Christ not only died for our sins, but rose from the dead on the third day and appeared to his disciples. So in Christ, he has the resurrection body, the glorified body. And this is important for the gospel because, look at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. There's the resurrection, raised from the dead. And in his resurrection, he is the what? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in other words, if Christ has risen from the dead, then what's going to follow? What's the second and third fruits? What's the following fruits? Whose resurrection? Our resurrection from the dead. Our glorification. And really, the renewal of the whole world. The new heavens and the new earth. All connected to Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. So the gospel is who Jesus is and what he has done. God incarnate in human flesh. Substituting in our place, living for us, dying for our sins, taking the wrath of God on himself for sinners and rising from the dead 
to restore his people and really to restore the new creation to come. At the, at the core, that's the gospel. But we need, we need more than this. We need a gospel framework to even understand what this means for us. And so um, when we do membership interviews, and we would encourage you to figure out, find a way to make sure that you're, the people you're taking into membership at your church have a credible profession of faith, that, they, that it, it seems, as best you can tell, that they do believe in Jesus and they do understand the gospel. So one of the things I'll ask when people are coming and intending to join our church is I will ask them in our membership interview, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And they get a little nervous at this point because, you know, they think it's a theology test. It's not a theology test. Just, you know the gospel. Just say what you think. And usually they get to Jesus, right? They get to Jesus and the cross, dying for our sins. And sometimes that's all they get, which is okay to start, but I want to fill that out. So let me give a, fra a, a framework here of what the gospel message is as we present it to people. Okay, so if this is who Jesus is and what he's done, uh, my question might be to fill out the logic of the gospel with biblical teaching is, why did Jesus come and do what he did? Okay, so he's God, he came in the flesh, he lived the life we should have lived, he died on the cross for our sins, he rose from the dead, but why? Why did he, why did he do that? They might say something like, well, uh, the Father sent him. Well, why did the Father send him? Well, God loves us. Okay, great. Why did God need to send him to love us? And why did he have to die for our sins? I mean, if God loves us, can't God just accept us? Isn't that love to accept us for who we are? Well, no, oh, God can't just do that because we're sinners. We have sinned against God. Okay, well, why is sin such a big deal? Well, first of all, is everyone a sinner? Yes, everyone's a sinner. Okay, we're all sinners, and what is sin? It's, it's disobeying God. Well, why is sin such a big deal? Why can't God just sweep that under the rug and let us in? Because he loves us. Answer, because God is holy. He's righteous. He's just. He upholds his righteousness. He upholds his glory, and he will not compromise upholding that glory. He's righteous. Okay. Well, if everyone's sinner, why does everyone have to believe in Jesus? Why are we all accountable to him? Whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you've heard of him or not, whether you grew up as a Muslim or as a Hindu or as an atheist or as a Christian, why does everyone have to give an account to this God? Well, this God created us. He created you. Whether Whatever beliefs you have, he is your creator. He is the creator of the whole universe, and he is your creator. So God is creator. God is, he created you in his image. He's holy. He made you in his image. You've sinned against God. The penalty for your sin is death. You are enslaved to sin as a consequence, and you are damned and condemned to die under God's righteous judgment and wrath. But God sent his son, Jesus, to live the life we should have lived and die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead. There's one more question I need to ask, though. During this interview, I ask, okay, that's great. Good news. Does that mean now everyone is going to heaven? Answer, yes or no? No, what, but he died. He died for sin. Does that mean everyone? Okay, so, so how do I get to benefit from that work and that news about Jesus Christ? How do we benefit from this? Well, you have to trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, well, what if someone says they believe in Jesus, but they continue to live however they want? Well, faith in Jesus includes repentance. True faith in Jesus, true turning to Jesus, is turning away from the, your sin at the same time and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, not your good works. So there's the gospel. Jesus Christ, incarnate, substituted for us, and restore, risen from the dead to restore us to him. But why is that necessary? Because God made you and he's holy. You are a sinner. You are made in his image to enjoy him, but you have sinned against God. 
and you are damned to die under his righteous judgment, but Christ has taken that damnation for you so that if you repent from your sins and your own goodness and righteousness and religion and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, he will save you. That's the gospel. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, what I just said is a message that God is saying to you this morning. God is calling you right now through my voice to turn from your sins, to turn from confidence in your own religion or ministry and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll give you his Holy Spirit. He'll write, he'll write his word on your heart and he will help you follow him all the way home. All right, so that's the gospel. What are the benefits of this gospel? Why does this benefit the church? Why do we need this as a healthy church? Well, first of all, if you don't believe this gospel, you're not a, you're not a church. You're a cult. You're a religious group. You're, you're, you're a community that gathers around something else. A Christian church is a church in Christ, believing the gospel of Christ, united to Christ by faith in this gospel. Why else does this benefit a church? How else does this make a church healthy? It keeps your church members from both despair and pride. It keeps your church members from both despair and pride. It keeps you from despair because God's grace, the work of Christ, can reach to the darkest sins, to the, those deepest in sin. You are never beyond God's reach, as Jerry Bridges said. And it keeps us from pride because when you're doing well and you feel like you're faithfully following Jesus, God's grace is still always needed and necessary every moment of your day. You need God's grace. And that humbles us to feel that need. So Jerry Bridges has summarized it this way. On our worst days, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on our best days, we are never beyond the need of God's grace. It has the power to save. Furthermore, the gospel has the power to sever the root of the culture of performance in our churches and can shape a culture of grace. I'm convinced this is one of the biggest issues in our churches is a culture of performance rather than a community of grace, of going to God for forgiveness and repentance and faith and living in light of that, resting in Christ as we obey him and serve one another and make Christ known to the world. I'll talk about that a little bit more in my next talk later this afternoon. So it keeps us being a church. It keeps our church centered on the cross and eternity when you preach this gospel regularly. There's a lot of debates about all kinds of things in our world today, right? Mask or no mask politics, race, all these things. But when you preach the cross regularly and you keep this central, it keeps us on eternity, heaven and hell, judgment. It keeps our bearings right as a church family. This gospel equips our people for evangelism. It equips us to gospelize one another for fresh faith. And from this gospel flows everything, our understanding of our, our, our preaching, our counseling, our discipling, our music, our evangelism, missions, membership, discipline, prayer, leadership, cooperation, Catholicity, with other churches, unity, all of these things are informed by, shaped by, and directed by this gospel. So brothers, I want to give you some tips here, uh, just some exhortations to you, some suggestions. This is not thus saith the Lord, but as you try to move your church towards health, I would uh, encourage you to, to give a gospel call to non-Christians in every sermon. Secondly, pray, uh, in a prayer of confession, in our church we have a prayer of confession, and we have a scriptural assurance of pardon. We, we confess our sins and say, we are all sinners here even now today. And so we confess our sins to God in prayer, and then we read a verse like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ, as we have confessed our sins, we know there is no condemnation for us. Again, another reminder to our church every week about the gospel. And then we sing a song about the cross and about the gospel. I encourage you to ask prospective members in a membership interview to explain the gospel in a minute or less. And use that time to fill out the gospel for them. And maybe even hold on their membership if they don't understand the gospel in a way that is concerning to you. 
And also, if you believe this gospel, learn to openly, in discreet ways, confess your sins to one another and confess our need for grace. Even as pastors, jar our church members who have mis misunderstood the pastorate as if we are holier than others in the sense that we don't struggle with sin or not tempted the way they are tempted. All right, so we need to think about this gospel, but when you think about this gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to think about theology, and we already did that, right? Who is God? What is man? What is sin? What's the consequence of sin? How do you receive Christ? So when you think about the gospel, you have to think about theology. God, creator, creation, man, sin, righteous wrath, Christology, atonement, resurrection, conversion, saving faith, credible repentance. And Paul has an example of laying out a framework for the gospel. So turn to Acts 17 with me. Look at Acts 17 here. As we, now we're going to the second heading. As we think about systematic theology, as we think about a gospel framework, a, a, uh, a systematic theology or a doctrine, an understanding, a system of truth to understand, make the gospel intelligible, and to continue to go deeper in it and communicate it clearly to others. Acts 17, Paul is gospelizing people here on the Areopagus, on Mars Hill in Athens. And before he gets to the gospel call, he gives a lot of theology, a framework, so that when he says, repent and come to Jesus, you have some theological pieces in place to understand what this gospel is and to respond. So look at Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens... I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. For I was passing through and observing the objects of worship. I even found an altar which is, was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, when you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So notice here already, Paul assumes, or Paul points out that they have assumptions of God. Everyone you're talking to has a framework already. They have an unknown God. They have assumptions about God and how they got here. And so to communicate the gospel, you need to understand their framework and challenge even their framework to understand the gospel. So, so first, you do have assumptions. You have this unknown God. I'm going to proclaim to you the true God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. So here you see that God, just again, some doctrine here. Um, God made all things. He's creator. He's Lord of all creation, of all creation. If you have multiple gods and you're a polytheist, he's saying, no, this God is God of everything. The whole universe, heaven and earth. So this God is God of gods, king of kings, lord of lords. And he does not live in shrines made by hands. So there's something of the presence of God, the, the spiritual, uh, that God is spirit. Verse 25, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Here we learn something else about God. This is what we might call the doctrine of aseity, that God is independent of creation. He does not need creation. He does not need you. He does not need me. He does not need our worship. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our thoughts. He doesn't need this world. God needs nothing. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is sufficient in and of himself and has been and will always be in and of himself, independent and self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything, it says here, since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. So he's the one who gives us life. He's telling them, and in verse 26, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. So here you have the doctrine of providence, right? Um, well, God made humanity, so there's the doctrine of humanity. Who is man and where did we come from? We came from one man, so there's Adam. Now you're going to talk about Adam and the story there. And then, and then um, he appoints the boundaries where we live. He appointed that you would be here today. 
to hear these messages from these preachers and think the thoughts you're thinking and have the conversations you're going to have. God is sovereign over all of that. All of it. Verse 27, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Notice they don't have him. They should seek God. He's not far, but they don't know him. He's the unknown God to them. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So they're talking about us made in God's image, even. Even there's some common grace here in how general revelation, others can know some true things about God, even though their framework is wrong, as Paul confronts the framework here. Look at verse 30 now. So there's the therefore. There's the framework there. Therefore, since you don't know this God, though you should know this God, and he's not the God like you think he is, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to what? To repent. To turn from your sins because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Who is this man that he has appointed? He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising this man from the dead. So who is this man? Jesus. There's the gospel call in the framework of the gospel. So what is systematic theology? Let me give some... uh, uh, just two, two kind of points to it. This is not a technical definition, but uh, a biblically grounded and faithful understanding, a biblically grounded and faithful understanding and articulation about the reality of God and all things in relation to God. A biblically grounded and faithful understanding and, articula- and articulation. So teaching, you could say teaching about, biblically, biblical teaching about the reality of God and all things in relation to God. So we're pointing to reality. We're pointing to reality. And so Kevin Van Hooser has written, sound doctrine says, says of what is, that it is. So what is real, what exists, says of what is, that it is. So you're pointing to reality and saying, this is reality. Or, he says, continue the quote, or rather, Christian doctrine says of what is in Christ that it is. Oh, sorry. Christian doctrine says of what is in Christ that it is. So all reality is in Christ, if you read Colossians. And Hebrews, all reality is in Christ. And so pointing to not only reality, but reality in Christ. That's Christian doctrine. So this coherent understanding and declaration of what is and what is real and what is in Christ, who God is, this systematic theology, is often articulated in the current confessional and contemporary context we find ourselves in. So historical theology is people confessing these realities in a different context context, right? A different historical and confessional context, and we are doing that today here. So if you want to have a healthy church and and, and work towards gospel doctrine, you need a a good articulation, a faithful articulation of who God is and all things in relation to God um, for your people today in the world you're discipling them in and calling them to disciple their neighbors in. And again, to this point, people today already have a worldview. Everyone already has a framework for looking at the world with the assumptions about where we came from, who we are, where we're going, that's what Paul talks about here. So everyone has a systematic theology. It's just not that, it's not so systematic or it's not coherent. Everyone has a framework of how to think about where we came from, where we're going, what's wrong with the world, what will make this world right, what an ideal world looks like. People have answers to that and uh, it might not be coherent, but everyone has these things. So as we think about these things, I want to, um, I want to 
so, say, so, so for our church, we have our confession of faith, right? We have, you have a statement of faith or a confession of faith. And let me just show you from our confession of faith how we have a systematic theology here. I'm just going to go over the headings here of what our confession of faith says in order, okay? So I want, how many of you have a confession of faith? Raise your hand. How many of you are happy with your confession of faith, your local church's confession of faith? Raise your hand. Okay, not as many. Okay, you want to have a confession of faith that you can be happy with for discipling your, your people, and I'll talk about how to use that in a second. But let me summarize ours. We have 23 statements in our confession of faith, and it goes from God to God, God, and God with the world, God in relation to the world, to humanity, to redemption accomplished, to redemption applied, and to redemption consummated. Okay, it goes from God to God with the world to humanity to redemption accomplished, redemption applied, and then redemption consummated. And we didn't write this statement. This is an old statement from 1858, from a, a Baptist statement from 1858 that we kind of modified a little bit. Okay, so this, this logic is not something we came up with. It's just historically what other uh, churches have done. So when we talk about God, we're talking about the Bible. What do we believe about the Bible? It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's a final authority. It's sufficient. Then we talk about the Trinity, and we talk about God the Father who created the world. And then, we, so we move from God to God in the world. So we talk about the doctrine of providence is our next statement, that God rules and reigns and governs over everything and everyone and all human decisions without compromising human agency. So we talk about providence, and then we talk about humanity. Um, we, we talk about the doctrine of election that God chooses uninitiated by those outside himself. And then the doctrine of man that humans are made in God's image, but we are sinners damned to die for our sins. So that's um, humanity. Then we move to redemption accomplished, which is just Jesus. It's my favorite statement. It's Article 7 in our Confession of Faith. And it's a doctrine of who Jesus is and what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. Okay, that's Article 7. That's redemption accomplished in Jesus. Then we move to redemption applied, our doctrine of the Holy Spirit, who's God and what, God, what the Spirit does. Regenerate. Then we have the doctrine of salvation here. So regeneration, the new birth by the Spirit. Repentance and faith, which is conversion. And repentance from sin, faith in Jesus. Then justification, the declaration that we are righteous in God by faith alone. Then transformation or sanctification, the progress of, of, of being made more righteous and holy. Then perseverance to the end. So there's the doctrine of salvation for individuals. Then we go to the kingdom. What is the kingdom? God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule and reign. Then we talk about the Christian and social order. How do you live in this world as Christians? If the gospel is our primary responsibility to get out, what about our general responsibility to society as neighbors? Then we have a statement on the liberty of conscience, how we relate to the state in this world as well. We have a statement on marriage, which is important these days, right? And then we talk about the church. What is the church? What is our doctrine of the church with congregational polity for us and plurality of elders? Baptism, what is baptism? Baptizing those upon a profession of faith. Uh, the Lord's Supper and what it is and who can take it. So that's redemption applied and lastly redemption consummated. The resurrection and the judgment. Notice that's a full systematic theology, right? In, in a, in a two-page front and back, one-page one uh, double-sided document of our confession of faith. And all of these things are necessary as a framework to understand and make the gospel intelligible, to draw from the gospel, and to live in light of the gospel. So you want to have sound doctrine that's biblical and articulated clearly. So that's the flow to our confession of faith. Now, in our confession of faith, I'm just how we do it at our church, there's, we, we do need a little bit of what Albert Muller calls theological triage. Not all doctrines are equally important. I just read 1 Corinthians 15.3, and it says, I delivered unto you what is of first importance or the csb most important 
So that's not to say there aren't other things that are important. This one is most, more important, the most important, first importance. So we have um, two lanes. There's really, at least for Al, for Al Mohler, there's three, three lanes. Our confession of faith only focuses on two. What is necessary for salvation? What is necessary for salvation? And then what is necessary for obedience to God as a, as a local church? So those are the two uh, tiers, what's necessary for salvation, what's necessary for our obedience, because we are not just, it's not just salvation stuff, right? Jonathan talked about that last night. It's not just the most important stuff. There is a middle lane here. And in the church, this is important for us to get and have clarity of conscience. Why? Because the Great Commission says in Matthew 28, 20, not only are you supposed to go and disciple and baptize, but teaching them to what? Observe or obey what? All that Christ commanded. So as a church, it's not just about what, what do you need for salvation? If our mission is to disciple one another and disciple our neighbors and the nations, we need to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. So what do we as a church need to be obeying the Lord? Not for salvation, but in obedience to the Lord to please him and to disciple people faithfully. It's not just about the gospel in that regard, but the framework that follows and flows from it. All right, so what are the benefits for a church? If you do this and you have a good, healthy understanding of doctrine, it gives us the necessary information to know and trust and follow and obey Jesus in a myriad of situations. You can't answer all questions, right? But, but having a, a good framework, it helps you understand and follow Jesus in the general direction. It guards our communion and our worship of Jesus, and it shapes our worldview to see Christ and savor him. And then the, uh, this confession of faith, this sound doctrine, guards the unity of the church. And I'll say a little bit about that when I give a suggestion here. It guides our ethics as well. It teaches us how to live life, our life in light of the gospel. So if Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead to win back his bride, we have a statement on marriage in our confession of faith. And what does Ephesians 5.22 say? Wives, submit to your husbands as, as uh, the church submits to Christ. And then Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. From this gospel truth flow gospel entailments and ethics that guide our lives. So this equips us for witness to others because we not only say what is the gospel to our neighbors, but we challenge their framework with a gospel consistent framework. And it helps us obey and teach others to obey all that Christ commanded. So let me give you a few tips here before we go to biblical theology in our last section. So if you have a confession of faith, what I say in our class uh, when we do the new members classes, we have this two-page document, and I say, this is what our church agrees on. If you're going to join this church, this is what our church agrees on. This is what we have agreed to agree on. It's also a statement of what we agree to disagree on or what we're going to allow to disagree on. And basically, anything that's not on this page, we're allowing disagreement on it. So it is a statement of unity, not just by virtue of what we agree on, but what we're agreeing to disagree on. So, for example continuationism. We don't have a statement of whether the gifts have ceased or not. So when I get to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it's usually when I make this point in my teaching. But in that point, in continuationism, uh, we have members who believe that the, the gifts continue and some believe that the gifts ceased. In our not saying something, we are saying that if you divide our church over this, we, that's sinning and we will discipline for that. Okay? So it's, we, we are, we're allowed to disagree on that. We're also allowed to disagree on whether to wear masks or not. During COVID, we're also allowing disagreement on CRT. What do you think about it? Well, good to think about it. We also allow disagreement on partisanship for politics. This is what we agree to agree on. 
and everything outside of this, we're agreeing to make space. We could still persuade each other and pray for each other and reason from the Bible with each other. But as far as our church unity, it is on this confession of faith and our church covenant, which Jonathan might get to on the membership talk. So use it in your membership considered class. And then we tell members who are joining our church, not that you have to, because we have baby Christians. If someone just converted, they're not going to say, I, I believe and know all these doctrines. Yes, I know the doctrine of the Trinity, right? They're not going to say that. But we're, what we're going to tell them is, if you have any settled disagreements with any of this statement, then let's, let's work through those before you move forward in membership. Okay, if you have any settled disagreement. But if you don't and you're willing to be taught on these things as you keep growing in Christ, we're happy to take you in in that regard. Another thing you might want to do is use creeds. We use songs, and songs are like creeds. You're confessing biblical truth as you sing. Creeds are just a, a, a way of saying it in a stated way, um, just like memorized songs. But these are really careful theological statements on fundamental theological truths that the church should be united on. Not just with our church, but with other churches. You might consider having a catechism for your church. That might be helpful, might not be, but that's something to think about. Um, uh, I would also say that uh, maybe you should have a systematic theology class. I'm going to have a document that I'm going to email to all of you with a bunch of different resources through all of the talks here. It's a Google Doc you could look at. I have on there already the, the CHBC systematic theology class and biblical theology class. You could also go to their website and find it, but you might consider doing a class or reading and doing um, reading theological books with, with members. And then lastly, and Bobby Jameson wrote a, an article recently about like preaching the Trinity in exposition. Uh, in a nine marks journal. Uh, when you get to theologically pregnant phrases in your exposition, it might be good to pause there and fill it out theologically for the people so they understand what that word means in its theological richness. All right, so that's systematic theology. And we got one more. So that, what is the gospel? If you're going to have gospel doctrine, you need to understand the gospel message. You need to understand the framework for the gospel. And your people need to understand that. You need to equip the saints with that for their work of ministry. And lastly... Biblical theology. What is biblical theology as far as the discipline goes? Biblical theology is, um, Graham Goldsworthy writes, or he, he describes biblical theology as how every part of the Bible relates to every other part of the Bible. And how every part of the Bible relates to Jesus. That's a good way of summarizing. How every part of the Bible relates to every other part of the Bible. And how every part of the Bible relates to Jesus or connects to Jesus. My definition of biblical theology is biblical theology is the study and application of scripture on its own terms, its own terminology, in light of the whole canon with its storyline culminating in Jesus, the Messiah. The study and application of scripture on its own terms, in light of the whole canon with its storyline culminating in Jesus, the Messiah. So studying the Bible on its own terms is uh, you're studying it on its own terms in a chronological way, in a covenantal way, in a canonical way, in a in, or in chronological, covenantal, canonical, and Christological context. Here's a short definition, last definition here, by um, Andy Nacelli and Derushi and uh, Oren Martin. Biblical theology studies how the Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ. That's short. Three, three, three key words. This, it studies how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ. Helpful definition. All right, if you, if you, I want to close with, with telling you the storyline, but before I do, what are the benefits of biblical theology? And then I'll, I'll just kind of tell the storyline here to, and then uh, think about how to connect things to Christ. If you have a good understanding of how the whole Bible connects to Christ and how the storyline points to Christ and culminates in Christ, then people, when you preach and you connect your, your teaching and preaching to it, it helps people see Christ's glory from all, facets, from all sections of Scripture. 
And when people see Christ's glory, as Bobby emphasized last night from 2 Corinthians 3.18, when you see the glory of Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So we want to hear uh, Christ and see Christ's glory because that transforms us. Colossians 1.28 says, we proclaim him, Christ, teaching and warning everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So understanding biblical, biblical theology can help you proclaim Christ from legitimate connections in the Bible towards Christ. And we know this one, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ, the message about Christ. And so we need to keep preaching Christ and pointing Christ from the Bible um, because that's how people grow in faith and grace comes through faith. All right, I want us to meditate now. I want to actually just go through the storyline of the Bible. And I want to try to do this in 10 minutes or so, okay? I want to go through the storyline of the Bible. And if you want to turn to one text, I'm going to several texts here, so if, uh, I might just go everywhere. But if you want to turn to one, because I'm going to pause and slowly go through Matthew 26. So if you want to turn your Bible now to Matthew 26, and when I get there, we're going to just go, we're going to slow down there and then pick up the speed again and going through Genesis throughout Revelation. So Matthew 26. Okay, so story of the Bible. God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell in sweet and full communion, love and joy from everlasting to everlasting. God is sufficient in and of himself and enjoys that communion for all eternity. And God desires and then chooses out of his fullness, not out of his emptiness, not out of his need, but out of his fullness, chooses to have a people, his people, celebrating his son as his bride Celebrating a son who's in the image of the Father. Celebrating the son in the power of the Holy Spirit for joyful communion and love in God's presence, in God's place forever. And so the way Graham Goldsworthy summarizes one of the main themes of the Bible, the story is the story of the kingdom. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God desired to have a people in his place under his rule and blessing in sweet communion and fellowship. So here's the story. Genesis 1. So, so God creates the world. He creates a garden. He creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the garden, and, his and he's, he makes them in his image. What does that mean to be made in his image? He, he makes them to reflect him, to reproduce more image bearers, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it, to reign. So, so image bearers uh, relate to God in, in, a, in a specific and special relationship. We reflect God. We reproduce image bearers for God's glory, and we reign subduing the earth and spreading his image and glory over the whole earth. Now, there's a problem. God created man and woman in the garden perfect, and yet they sin. They're told not to eat the fruit. They eat the fruit. They sin, and they're enslaved now to sin. God said, the day you eat of this fruit, you will certainly die. So they, so they are condemned in eating the sin or, or eating the sin, eating the fruit. And so they sin, and now they get kicked out of the garden. They cannot be with God. So God exiles them from his place. God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. Now they are exiled, kicked out of God's place because of their sin. And they are enslaved in sin. Their, their offspring is enslaved in sin. Even Noah is enslaved in sin. It culminates in the Tower of Babylon where all these people get together. You're supposed to be, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. They don't want to fill the earth. They want to stay all together and build a name for themselves. Not spread and, and honor God's name. They want to stay together and build a name for themselves, which is a, a communal type sin, right? Together, corporate sin, like all together. And so God judges them there, and clearly humanity is enslaved to sin and rebelling against God and deserving of God's curse, God's righteous judgment on them. 
So God is now separated from his people. But his desire is to be with his people forever. Now he's separated from his people, and they are condemned and, and separated from God. Will this separation remain? Is God's plan thwarted? Will Satan the serpent who weaved his way in the garden, will he get his way? And will God's glory be diminished in these people in terms of them joyfully reflecting him under his blessing? Would sin keep God separated from his people? That's the, that's the question. That's the challenge of the story. That's the problem. God's son would have to make this right because Adam, God's son, according to Luke 3, failed. So you have God's people no longer in God's place, no longer under God's rule and blessing. But it's, um, and so God has a plan. So from Genesis 12 to Revelation or to Malachi 4, here's the Old Testament. This heading would be called promise. So that was the problem. What's the promise? From Genesis 12 on to Malachi chapter 4, the Old Testament, God promises Abraham a people, a land, and a blessing. Go from your place. I will make you a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. I'll make you a great nation. And in them, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God promises a land and a people and a blessing for a cursed people. That's good news. That's a promise of salvation. That his story would be fulfilled and he would dwell with his people in his place forever. And so Abraham lives and dies. And then eventually Israel is raised up as a nation, as Abraham's offspring. Israel is called God's son in, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. So now God's son is enslaved in Egypt. God frees them from Egypt in the Exodus redemption. And then God brings them to Mount Sinai. He makes a law covenant, an Israelic national covenant with Israel that they would be his people and he would be their God and they would obey him. Then he instructs them on a tabernacle to build so that God would, not since Genesis 3, God was moving back down to earth. He's gone. And now when the tabernacle is built, Exodus 40, God's glory fills up the tabernacle. God moves back to earth. The way he was in the Garden of Eden, God is back on earth there in the tabernacle. So God's people are in God's place, and there's God in his presence under his rule. So there's a tabernacle, and then eventually God moves them to the land of promise through Joshua and the period of Judges. And then they set up, and they're called to be a holy son there of God, there to be a priesthood to the nations. And God calls them to set up, or they eventually set up a kingdom. Okay, so that's Israel set up as a kingdom, God's people, the nation of Israel, in God's place, the land of Canaan, with a tabernacle under God's rule and blessing. And then comes the greatest of all Israelite kings. His name is David. Yeah, David, okay. You might say Solomon, yeah, David. So David is raised up as king. So now a king is set up, a Davidic king. God makes a covenant with David that he will always have a king sitting on the throne over God's people. And then it moves from a tabernacle with David's son, Solomon. Solomon builds a what? A temple, a more permanent tabernacle. And this is the high point, get this, this is the high point of Israel's history. Solomon in the land with a temple under the covenant, with a Davidic covenant as well. There's flourishing, there's peace. He have the wisest king in the whole world. People are coming, all the nations are coming to recognize and say, who is your God? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And they ask Solomon for wisdom and he's gospelizing them with the fear of Yahweh, who God is. And so there's prominence of Israel among the nations. This is the high point in Israel's story, but it's all downhill from here. Solomon actually rebels and rejects God and marries many wives and commits idolatry. After Solomon, the kingdom splits in two, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Are they going to keep that Israeli national covenant promise? No, they don't. They keep breaking the promise and disobeying God. So eventually the northern kingdom, they, just, they, they, they reject the prophets and the word of God, and so they are exiled out of the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom in 586 BC is finally exiled out of the southern kingdom and Jerusalem is destroyed final or fully by Babylon in 586. 
And so God's son failed again. In the Garden of Eden, Adam, God's son, failed. Israel now in the promised land with the temple in God's presence under the covenant. Just keep the covenant uh, under God's rule and blessing. They fail and now they're exiled out of the land. But to close off the Old Testament here, what's the promise? The promise here, God promises in the Old Testament a land. I'm going to restore you to the land. I'm going to restore a temple to you. I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel. You have the old law covenant, the old Israelic covenant. I'm going to make a new Israelic covenant with you. I'm going to renew holiness. I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, and you will commune with me, and I will restore a Davidic king to you. God's people in God's place under God's rule, it's promised. They come back to the land after exile, and it doesn't look anything like what was promised. And that's the end of the Old Testament. A promise, but no fulfillment. Well, is this going to be fulfilled? Well, we get to the New Testament now. And it is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled for us. And then maybe in, and then in us. And then in all creation. So it's fulfilled for us. God sends his son Jesus. The word becomes flesh. God dwells on earth. He trusts and, uh, he trusts and obeys the law covenant as man and God. And he, um, he casts out demons and teaches and disciples. And then he has to die for sinners to rule and reign. So here's the, here's the tough part for, for Jesus as Jesus comes. He has to go and die in the place of his people. To get this bride back, to dwell with them, he has to die in their place for their sins under God's wrath and just judgment and rise on the third day. And here we have Jesus at his weakest, I think, other than maybe the three hours on the cross in darkness. So look at Matthew 26 here. Look at Matthew 26, verse, verse uh, 36. Uh, Jesus is here, I think, at his weakest, most distressed it says here, uh, he, he's, he's at the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and he says, sit here while I go over there to pray. In verse 37, taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. I am deeply grieved. So he's sorrowful and troubled. I am deeply grieved. Another translation might say, I am swallowed up by sorrow. I feel like I'm about to die. I'm so burdened, so heavy-hearted, so stressed, so distressed. I feel like I'm going to die. Wow. Can't imagine this grief. I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He comes back. He sees them sleeping. And in verse 42, he goes a second time back to a private place. He went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he found them sleeping. And then verse 44, after leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time. Three times he's asking. A third time. Saying the same thing once more. Let this cup be passed from me, yet not, your, yet not my will, but yours be done. Christ is in a real burden right here. He is really stressed and agonizing. Would he be willing to die? Here at his weakness, he is staring at the cup of God's wrath. He's about to become a ransom and take the judgment of God for every single sin of every single sinner who would ever believe. Anyone who suffers an eternity in hell has a, a small portion, infinitely small portion of what Christ is staring at in this cup. And so, yeah, he's going to ask God once and twice and three times. He would have to drink this cup to the very last drop to deliver his people from their doom. There's nothing more dreadful, terrifying, terrible, and painful than to, drink, than to drink this cup, to die this death for an untold number from every tribe, people, nation, 
and language. So would he defeat Satan and death? Or would he call 10,000 angels? It says in Matthew 26, 53, I could call 10,000. Look at verse 53, last verse here to, to mention. It says, um, do you think that I cannot call my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? Now, how do you put that together with the sovereignty of God and his plan? But the point here is Christ said, I could call them. I can call them. But I won't. And so he goes to die on the cross for our sins. If he doesn't do it, the Father's will isn't done. The people are not saved. They are left in sin and darkness and damnation and doom. And God would fail to be reflected in his people's joy and blessing. And Satan would succeed in thwarting God's plan. But Jesus presses forward. He hangs on the cross. The next morning at 9 a.m., he's hanging on the cross. By noon, it's all darkness. And he's hanging in darkness under the judgment of God from noon to about 3 p.m. And in that darkness, somewhere in there experiencing God's wrath, he cries out on the cross, My God, my God. Why? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And the prophet explains, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. How deep the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. Jesus dies in our place for our sins. So the fulfillment of the promise of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing is fulfilled for us. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is God's people. He's humanity, right? He is, he is man. He represents us. He is the true Israel. So he is God's people in God's place. He is the temple. Remember, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will what? Raise it. So he's God's place, and he is under God's rule and blessing, and he's the Davidic king who will rule. So Jesus fulfills all of God's promises for us. And then if you go to Acts 1 to Revelation 20, he fulfills it in us. How does God fulfill it in us? I'll, I'll go faster now. He fulfills the, the promise in us. How? They're waiting for Christ. They're, they're praying and waiting. Christ ascends to heaven. They wait for 10 days. The Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost. He indwells his people. He guides his people. He shepherds his church. They start sharing the gospel with the Jews. Then they share with the Samaritans. Then they share the gospel with all ethnic people groups, all nations. They start planting churches everywhere as they're scattering letters by apostles and apostolic delegates. And... Um, um, uh, teams are being written to the churches. Churches are struggling to be faithful to Christ and to be helpful to each other. And they go, they make disciples of all nations, gospelizing, discipling, baptizing, teaching, establishing churches, cooperating together so that all ethnic people groups would hear the gospel because Christ is worthy of praise from all ethnic people groups, every tribe, nation, people, and language. And so now in this part of the story, our part where we're currently experiencing right now as we sit here, who is God's people? Those in Christ. Where are they? Where, where, where does God dwell? Where's the temple now? Where's the temple now? Is it this church building? Where's the temple now? It's us. And us individually, but even, I would say, I would argue a little bit more for us corporately when we're gathered as a local church. Ephesians 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. God's place, the people of God gathered around Christ spiritually and in churches regularly under God's rule and blessing, under Christ, the new covenant and the gospel and apostolic teaching. So it's fulfilled for us in Christ. It's being fulfilled in us now, in, in us as the spirit applies this work in our churches and in our lives. And it will be fulfilled in all creation in Revelation 21 and 22. Christ returns. There's a final judgment. We will have glorified bodies. 
We will be presented as his bride, spotless and holy. We will enjoy the wedding feast and consummate the wedding with the Lord. And we will be in the new heavens and the new earth, reigning with him, celebrating and worshiping, fully united or united to the Son and now glorified, entering into the new earth, which is also the new city, Jerusalem, which is also the new temple in Revelation 21 and 22, under God's rule. And we will reign forever and ever and ever. And it's all about Jesus. I have some tips here on how to apply biblical theology, but I'm just going to close here. I'll put it on the document. You can read it later. We can ask during Q&A. But maybe one is just read and reread and reread your Bible and keep going over the story again and um, figure out how there's a lot of biblical theology books and things of how to connect the story to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are many ways to tell the story of the Bible, and we just did one. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the fulfillment for us, for becoming a man and fulfilling the call not only as God the Son, but the Son of God, Messiah, true Israel, for us, dying, living for us, dying for us, for our sins, rising from the dead, ascending and ruling, and being the new creation restoration in yourself as the first fruits. Thank you for fulfilling the promises for us. And then thank you for applying it to us and fulfilling it in us by your spirit, calling us to repentance and faith and obedience in local churches for the sake of Christ's glory. And thank you for the hope of Christ returning. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to know Jesus. Help us to grow more and more in love with you by understanding what your word teaches. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.